Welcome to Book Me, Conversations with Writers, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Today, our host, Costa Talabrezos, will be speaking with Graham Steele. If you've ever been upset with the status quo in education, health, the environment, snow clearance, any service delivered or regulated by some level of government, what did you do? Vent on social media and to your friends? Or did you begin the long slug of engaging with politicians to try to effect change? In The Effective Citizen, How to Make Politicians Work for You, Graham Steele offers frank, practical advice on the latter course of action. A lawyer and Rhodes Scholar, Steele spent 15 years in what he calls daily politics and 12 in the Nova Scotia legislature. He served as Minister of Finance and, after resigning from Cabinet, did a brief encore as Minister of Economic and Rural Development and Tourism in the NDP government of Daryl Dexter. He now teaches law to great students, his description, at Dalhousie University's Rose School of Business. Graham Steele, welcome to Book Me. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. You're a former Rhodes Scholar, so I wasn't surprised to see you uh, cite serious authors like uh, philosopher Harry Frankfurt and uh, closer to home, Professor Laura Penny, uh, near the beginning of your book when you used a certain word to describe one citizen's interactions with a politician. Can I say that word out loud? Yes, you may. Yeah, I I was talking about political bullshit, of course, which is uh, a word with a serious academic background. And there's a lot of it floating around in politics, but, you know, leaving aside sort of the street use of it, what political bullshit is, is when somebody says something and they don't know or they don't really care whether it's true or not, but it works. It works to achieve the purpose. And there's, it's one of the tricks that politicians learn is how to use it and spread it around. And are we hearing more of it and seeing more of it these days, do you think, than, say, 25 years ago? Well, absolutely. And the blame for that lies almost entirely with Donald Trump, who is the biggest, baddest bullshitter that anybody could even imagine. He's taken a political tendency and taken it to an extreme that none of us even imagined was possible. You just assume that there is some limit at which there has to be some factual basis for what you're saying, but apparently... Not. I don't think we're still at the bottom yet of how far down we can go that particular rabbit hole. I mean, I, I've seen that tendency for a long time, Costas, but I just never realized it could be taken so far. And then other politicians, our own Canadian politicians, who on the whole are a little bit nicer with less sharper edges than some of the American politicians, are saying, well, if this works, maybe I should try it too. So you see some of them sort of stepping gingerly into this area as well and realizing that maybe they could bullshit a lot more than they are already. But even if it's not as egregious as as Donald Trump's uh, approach, uh, it's still very often enough to put people off the scent of what they're trying to get at or to distract the media. Right. And that's really why politicians do it. And, And getting to the theme or the purpose of my book, what I'm trying to say to people is, look, here's how you recognize political bullshit. And here's what you do about it. When I was in politics, I met a lot of people, a lot of great, well-meaning people who wanted something from government, but they just didn't know how to go about it. And when you're a politician, you learn all kinds of techniques to fend people off, to push people away, to just not do anything like right now. Uh, So you you learn all these tips and techniques. And what what I'm doing in my book is saying, 
look, this is what how politicians think. This is why they do it. And I did it, and not, I'm not as, it wasn't as bad as some, but sure, I did it too. Because when you're in that environment, you learn what I think of as survival techniques. How do you get through this meeting? How do you get through this protest? How do you get through this day? And now that I'm out of politics, I don't mind saying to people, look, this is what's going through your politician's head. And if you want to get things done, you have to recognize it, stop it, and then know how to move the conversation forward. And it's interesting because very near the beginning of the the book, you uh, create this scenario of, of someone who's with a nonprofit who's been trying to get this this meeting with the MLA, uh, and and what goes on the interchange between them over over a period of time, just as a as a little template for the kind of interactions that a lot of citizens have with politicians. Right. And I'd hear about this over and over again, and I, you know, I'd see it. And the essence of that interaction is that the citizen walks out of the politician's office thinking they've really gotten somewhere without realizing that all they've got at the end of the day is empty words. And then time passes and nothing gets done. But they think the politician is on their side. But nothing gets done and nothing gets done. And so what I'm trying to do by painting that scenario is to say to people, if you experience this, you need to recognize it, stop it, and then turn the conversation in more constructive ways. And one of the neat things about being an author, Costas, is you, you get feedback from your audience. And so many people have said to me after reading that scenario or hearing it, you know, in, in a in a in an author reading or something like that, they just nod their heads and say, oh, yes, I've experienced that too. <laughs> people recognize it. I, I've pointed it out uh, to, to people as well when they've read it. They said, I've been in that meeting. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's that close. And uh, really what I want, I don't want citizens to be frustrated. I mean, part of the energy of our democracy, Costas, is the well-meaning people who want to get something done. And I'm just so afraid of what happens when people get cynical, frustrated, uh, turned off from the political process, and then they start spinning in directions like conspiracy theories, and it's just not a good scene. So what I'm trying to say to people is, look, um, if you want to work with politicians, get things done, first spend some time understanding what's going on in their head. In your previous book, what I learned about politics, you said that it doesn't matter which party you belong to. For instance, once elected, your duties and constituency work are all the same. Now, what becomes more important than acting for constituents to a politician once they have been elected? That's what's going on in their minds. Um, so I, you know, when you're elected, let's take Nova Scotia, for example. Uh, every MLA represents roughly 20,000 people. And they get to know that area and those people intimately, like inside out. They know every street. They know every house, every apartment building, every business. Every, all the relationships, every, all the Every families. blade of grass because at the end of the day, that's, that, those are the same people who are going to decide whether to reelect a politician or not. And that kind of obsesses politicians. And I was thinking about those people and those boundaries every single day because the only reason I held elected office is because they sent me there. The only reason I would return to elected office is that if they decided to vote for me in the next election. So if I'm consumed by that, that's what interest groups should be consumed with as well. Well, the desire to get reelected once you've been elected. Yeah. Just to give you the simplest example, if you are an interest group and you want to catch a politician's attention, get your supporters who live in their constituency to make the call. 
or even better to go and do that visit because I guarantee you the politician will pay a lot more attention to somebody who lives inside their boundaries than somebody who does not. That is just a reality of political life. Now, when you look along that spectrum from working for your constituents to what I can do to advance my political career, what are are some of the things at that end of the spectrum, the kind of uh, incentives to really concentrate on your career and advancing your career? You know, it's an interesting question that nobody's asked me before. Um, Advancing your political career, probably it's still all related to elections and the people back home. The people that are really valued in politics are the people who have a really good sense of what's on the voters' minds. Uh, If you get to know your constituents really well, I'll mention a name here. I may as well throw out a name. Uh, One of the the politicians that I admired most was Gordy Goss from the Whitney Pier uh, area of uh, Sydney on Cape Breton Island because Gordy knew his people inside out. And you could just raise an issue or name a policy initiative, and Gordy knew exactly who it would impact, how it would impact them, how they would react to it. And Gordy was a very canny political observer. And and that meant that people listened to him when he spoke. You knew that he really knew his people. How did he know his people? Because he lived among them his whole life. And he worked the constituency, you know, every week. Uh, he was there out talking to people on the street. And at the end of the day, that's what gets mounts valued the most. Even by premiers and prime ministers, the people they turn to for advice are not the sort of bookish MLAs or MPs who may understand, you know, the theory of a policy. It's the people who understand what's going on on the street. That's how you advance your career. But getting back to the the first portion of the effective citizen, where you're trying to describe the mind of a politician, uh, tell us about the drive of of partisanship, and uh, you know the uh, the pros and cons of not being a team player with your party. We're seeing some of that in Canadian Canadian federal politics uh, these days with uh, SNC Lavalin. What's going on there? But I referred earlier, Costas, to what I call survival techniques. Is uh, most of our politicians are actually overwhelmed by the amount of work coming at them, and nobody, no matter what their background, is equipped for the variety of issues that come at you when you're in elected office. Nobody can possibly be an expert on health and education and transportation and the justice system and so on and so on, all the things that a modern government deals with. So you end up finding... Uh, shortcuts and techniques of just trying to hold things together for the day. And one of them is party loyalty. Why do our politicians almost always vote together? Why do they always stick together? Uh, one of the reasons is it's it's survival. As soon as people start taking their own positions on things, it's too easy to for the other parties to criticize. It looks like the leaders lost control. It... it, it you're not a team anymore. Being a team player means that you're protected. You're protected by the others in your caucus and, and by your leadership. And one of the interesting things that's going on in Canadian federal politics now is we're seeing that break down just a little bit with the resignations of uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and particularly of Jane Philpot, which I found interesting because they've decided that there's something a little bit more important 
than the code of loyalty, and so both of them resigned uh, their positions in cabinet. And they were they were first timers in politics too, so they didn't have a long personal tradition of working within a party system. Right, and the longer you're in politics, the more you believe that party loyalty is the right way to go. But you know, Costas, I mean, we, we can think of other organizations that put a high value on loyalty, and one of them is the mafia. Right, it's a, it just the tighter you are. Um, the less possible it is for outsiders to find a way in. So the downside of it is obvious in politics is if you put party loyalty ahead of doing the right thing, then you end up with, with just pure partisanship where where you uh, you put the party ahead of everything. And that is in the long run not good for our democracy. So let's move towards the uh, the effective citizen part, you know, the tips that you have. When it comes to motivating a politician to do something you want this politician to do for you or your community or organization, uh, what methods are generally ineffective? What should you leave off the table? The first part of the book, as you have said, is is about well, what's going on inside a politician's head. And the second half of the book says, okay, now that you know that, what do you do about it? And there's uh, all kinds of... Uh, what I hope are helpful tips and techniques of getting a politician's attention and then learning to work with them. So, I mean, I, I could spend hours uh, talk, answering the question you just asked, <laughs> but let, let's look at some, some of the simpler and more obvious ones. Uh, one of my favorite stories um, is to ask people when I talk to an audience, what do you think is the single most common things that people say to their politicians when they call them? And the answer is, this is, um, when I was sitting in my constituency office, this would start at least half the calls, if not more. The person on the other end would start by saying, sorry to bother you. That immediately hands power to the politician. If you uh, say, oh, well, your time's more important than mine, and um, the politician can then decide whether to talk to you at all. You know, they might say, well, I'm busy, or they might shorten the call, or it allows the politicians to set conditions around how the conversation goes. And I think it's really important for citizens to understand that the politicians work for them, not the other way around. And when you think of it that way, you don't start your conversation by apologizing for calling because that's what the politician is there for. In the same vein, uh, Costas, these days, most people communicate with their politicians by email. It's okay. Uh, It's fast, it's quick, it's easy, but it keeps us at an emotional distance from the politicians. And I can tell you, politicians get so many emails, it's not a terrifically effective way of getting their attention or getting your point across, particularly if it's a form email, you know, where the, people send the same email from a website. It's, I just used to hit delete, delete, delete. It's like that has no impact. What does have an impact is the phone call. And even better than the phone call is the visit to the constituency office. Now, depending on the size of the politician's constituency, that may not be practical possible. But the more personal you can make it, stopping them on the street, calling them on the phone, visiting them in the office, um, eyeball to eyeball is the best way to have an impact on your politician. So don't be afraid to do it. Now, some people use uh, astrological signs to describe <laughs> personalities, but uh, you provide this this new <laughs> Graham Steele grid uh, for categorizing what kind of citizen you are when you engage. <laughs> I'm going to throw out the names now. Hurdle, nettle, rung, or chore. 
Now, could you explain those? Yeah, very simply, um, it's it's a it's a four quadrant grid based on whether you can help the politician politically or whether you can hurt them politically. Politicians have a lot of constituents coming at them, and they categorize them now. I'm not saying for one second that there's one other politician who uses these uh, words like I have, but they all do it. And any politician who says they don't is pulling (laughs) your leg because they definitely do. Um, The worst one to be in, uh, position to be in, is uh, what I call a nettle, which is you can hurt the politician, but you can't help them. You're just a little sting. You're painful. And every politician (laughs) knows exactly what I'm talking about where there's absolutely nothing to be gained by interacting with that particular citizen, either because they're single-minded or they're just angry all the time or, or maybe even threatening, you know, and all politicians unfortunately have that experience as well. And so once you're identified as a nettle, you will be pushed away as quickly as possible. Um, a rung sounds like it's good, where you can be part of the politician's progress. You can help them. Uh, politically. You can't particularly hurt them. And so they use you as a rung on their ladder to success. So they'll be your friend until you start asking for what they think is too much. So they might have their uh, picture taken with you for the uh, constituency newsletter, but you might not be going anywhere. Exactly. They're happy to uh, come for a visit to your nonprofit. They might even use you as a backdrop for an announcement. But if you start asking for too much too fast, they'll just find somebody else. And, and really, at the end of the day, that's what it all comes down to is, is um, voting and the impact on the next election. Politicians become very canny judges of what will cause people to vote one way or the other. So the very best thing, and this is one of the things that I, that I say in the book, is the, one of the very best things an interest group can do is to focus on building public support. It's never enough just to go to a politician with a good idea, even if you think it's the best idea in the world. If the public's not behind you, if your neighbors aren't behind you, the politician isn't going to line up behind you either. And this is difficult work that requires uh, time and effort. And that is, for example, when you go to the politician and you say, here's an issue and I'm speaking on behalf of a thousand people. If that's true, you will immediately have the politician's attention. But but, it, but can, is it true? Yeah. And the politician, if that politician knows his or her constituency, will know whether it's true. Yeah, I, I had people. I tell one a story in the book about a, a constituent who came to me claiming to represent 200 people in a certain industry. And, of course, it was just hot air. It wasn't, it wasn't one bit true, but it took me a little while to figure that out. But if it is true, 1,000 people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people, if it's true and you've done the work, believe me, you will have the politician's attention. The problem is that people make these claims, and the politicians are very astute judges of public opinion. And so if you say something like that to a politician, they're going to know pretty quickly whether it's true or not. And if it turns out not to be true, and you have this claim of public support that they know is not true, well, their estimation of you is going to go down, and that's not what you want. So if, uh, as a citizen, you do have enough self-awareness to know exactly how many people are, are backing you and your thoughts and, and goals up, for c- citizens who decide they really want to mobilize that kind of support for a political initiative to get from A to B, yeah. you use sailing a small boat as a metaphor. Why? 
I was trying to when I what I was trying to get across Costas was that one of the key things that active citizens don't take into account is that their issue is not the only thing on the table. Uh, when you're a politician, you have a hundred people, a thousand people coming at you with their uh, with their uh, favorite issue, and each interest group deals with their issue as if it's the only thing on your desk. And what I was saying with that sailing metaphor is, look, it, you can be at point A and you can look across the water to point B and it looks easy to get from point A to point B. But there is so much happening between those two things, the wind, the wave, the currents, other boats on the water. It might require really expert sailing to get from A to B. You need to take into account everything that is going on in the environment, on the water, um, not to mention having some skills in sailing a boat to get from point A to point B. Most interest groups do not take that into account. And if you if you want to know what's going on in a politician's head, you should know things like, well, the, the meeting just before yours, what was that about? The meeting just after yours, what was that about? What happened to your issue after you've left the room? Who is it delegated to? Is it delegated to anybody at all? Because everybody in politics is busy. And just because you have a good idea doesn't mean it's going to be anywhere close to the top of the pile. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier that it's uh, never good to uh, apologize that, you know, the, when you make the, the initial call to the politician. But after you have engaged with the politician, what are some of the things you can do to make sure it, it's still actively on an agenda? Keep in touch with them. There's nothing wrong with calling the politician once in a while to say, okay, what's the status? And, and this is when it's important to be able to recognize bullshit. One of the things I stress in the book is the only thing that matters for the effective citizen is what the politician does. It is not what they say. I know this because I was in politics. You learn defensive mechanisms. You learn survival techniques. You learn what to say that will make people leave your office happy without actually doing anything. And a citizen, to be truly effective, needs to understand when that's what's happening and say to the politician, no, I'm sorry, you said that this would be done by such and such a date. Can you tell us why it has not been done? You claim that you've um, been in touch with the minister. Can you please show us the emails or the letters that you wrote to the minister? And the politician says, well, well, I just I just had a conversation down at the legislature. And you say, no, can you please put that in writing and copy us on that so that we have a record of what you've said and when you've said to it? Things like that. Politicians don't necessarily like this because they get so used to getting their own way. They're not used to citizens effectively engaging with them and pushing back. So they won't like it at first, but strangely, they may come to appreciate it once they know that they're dealing with somebody who really is an effective citizen. It's good to have what I call a champion, somebody who really understands the system and really is on your side, because they can give you insider information on what is realistic and what kind of time frame uh, you should expect. So for many interest groups, I recommend they find a former politician, a former civil servant. They can be very good. Even an existing politician or civil servant, somebody who, who for whatever reason, supports your issue, what it is you're trying to accomplish. And they can be your insider. They can be your source of information about what's going on, who's saying what to whom, 
and just make sure that you know what how the process is unfolding. I talked to a politician a little while ago who, who told me a story along those lines. An interest group, can't remember off the top of my head which one it was, came to him and said to him explicitly, these were their words, will you be our champion? And this is something a politician kind of likes to hear. It sounds, you're, you're being picked out of the crowd to work with this group. And so, of course, he said yes. And I thought that was a very smart move by uh, that particular citizen group. You resigned from Daryl Dexter's cabinet, and you wrote a letter of resignation. Now, I, I've been thinking of that letter a, a lot <laughs> in the, the 2019 uh, winter of our discontent, uh, without going into the conflicting accounts of why Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, was moved out of the justice position and cabinet served for a few weeks in another portfolio, then resigned from cabinet. What's been going on in your mind as you've been observing that? I think it's wonderful what's going on right now. Um, Because of some of the academic work that I do at Dalhousie, I feel like I know a fair bit about these deferred prosecution agreements and public procurement and, and that sort of thing. But we won't get into that today. But just in terms of politics... Uh, the fact that a minister uh, appears to have stood on principle and said what is happening is wrong and therefore, uh, well, she didn't resign, did she? She was moved out of the position, then she resigned later. And the one that I thought was just as interesting was when Jane Philpott, apparently in support of Jody Wilson-Raybould, also resigned from a very important uh, position in the federal cabinet. And this kind of thing gives me hope uh, we are our politicians are far far too governed by an ethic of of loyalty of support for the party and the leader above all else and what we see now is politicians who are willing to put other values above loyalty to the party. Graham Steele, thank you very much for joining us on Book Me. Thanks, Goss. It's great to be here. Graham Steele is the author of What I Learned About Politics Inside the Rise and Collapse of Nova Scotia's NDP Government, and most recently, The Effective Citizen, How to Make Politicians Work for You. He now teaches law at Dalhousie University's Rose School of Business. Graham has also recorded the audiobook version of The Effective Citizen. The audiobook version can be purchased and downloaded from any of the following sites, audiobooks.com, audible.com, or kobo.com. If you prefer to listen to the audiobook version at your local library, just ask a librarian for assistance in accessing it. To hear past episodes of our podcast, go to bookmepodcast.ca. That's bookmepodcast.ca. Or just pop Book Me with an exclamation mark in your search engine. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. It's produced by Robin Grant and Lynn Fox makes us sound like effective podcasters. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Read.